This is PhD Mystified, a series about the unspoken challenges of becoming a scientist. We invite faculty from the University of Pennsylvania to share their personal journeys and reflect on the struggles that students and early career scientists face today. In this episode, we hear from Dr. Maria Geffen, a brain scientist who studies how we hear and form memories of sounds. Dr. Geffen shares her journey from a student who made a groundbreaking discovery to becoming a faculty member at Penn. She also shares advice for applying to graduate school, her views on publishing in academia, and reflections on her experiences as a woman in STEM. Once, I think in my sophomore year, I found out about, in college, uh, about computational neuroscience. I was kind of like, huh, that's going to work well for me. <laughs> and um, I went to Princeton and John Hopfield was working at Princeton. And so my um, college advisor told me, like, uh, you know, like you get assigned an advisor. So he told me maybe you should just work with John Hopfield. So then I went to talk to John Hopfield and I ended up doing a senior thesis with him. Uh, so that was pretty easy. In my undergrad, um, I, did, I studied molecular biology with biophysics. We didn't have a neuroscience major then. Uh, but my project was basically neuroscience. So we actually tried to look, try to understand how whiskers work in rats. So um, in general, rats uh, sense the world to a large part using their whiskers. And whiskers are kind of weird because there's just only 20 of them on each side of the uh, face. And so they um, go past surfaces and kind of whisk, right, to figure out what the surface is and to orient themselves. Uh, so something that um, John and I noticed when we were reading papers is that before doing uh, experiments, and people would trim the whiskers to one centimeter uh, on the on one side of the face and the reason they did that is that they could record in the brain and then get more data you know with the standardized measurements but in fact if you think about how whiskers work the front whiskers are really short the back whiskers are really long and so effectively when the rat is sweeping them past the surface they have very different elastic elastic mechanical elastic properties and so the longer whiskers are going to be sensing lower spatial frequencies in the texture, and the shorter ones will be sensing higher frequencies in the texture. And so we developed this idea that the whiskers pad actually works very much like our cochlea, like the hair cells. So in the cochlea, we have this range of hair cells, right? The gradient that goes from high frequencies to low frequencies. Uh, and we propose that whiskers are doing something very similar, just in a very rudimentary fashion, since there's only five uh, columns of whiskers. So uh, we indeed then, um, if you know Sam Wang, Sam Wang um, is a neuroscience professor, and he plucked the whiskers from a rat they were um, uh, not going to use. And I took those whiskers and measured their um, elastic properties, and I calculated that that in fact, um, as would be uh, predicted by very basic uh, physics, the uh, longer uh, whiskers had lower resonance frequencies and the shorter whiskers had higher resonance frequencies. And in fact, that very silly kind of uh, project uh, became very, a very important discovery in the field. So somehow, just because people were trying to standardize their experimental techniques, they were just overlooking for decades 
these properties, uh, the elastical properties of whiskers. So then I interviewed for PhD uh, for uh, for graduate schools, and uh, when I came to Harvard, there was a professor there, Chris Moore, who got really interested in this idea, and he basically told me that if I came, we could just explore this idea further and do some experiments to measure whether, in fact, the brain was registering these differences in frequency um, in activation of the whiskers. Uh, and we did that and uh, presented this at the whisker at the barrels meeting. And essentially, like, you know, we presented it, and the next year there were like there was a whole uh, poster session devoted to just elastic properties of whiskers. <laughs> 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 so um, anyway, so early on <laughs> I didn't realize that not every project I'm going to start is going to be this like revolutionary <laughs> kind of thing. So then I came to Harvard and I could either keep working on my whisker project or join a different lab. And I did two rotations. I did one rotation in Marcus Meister's lab. Uh, and I also did a rotation in, the, in Bernardo Sabatini's lab, who um, you know, is kind of this um, pioneer in like two photon imaging and optogenetics and um, uh, and I really during my rotation in the Maestro lab I also made a discovery which was super cool so I tried to look at what happens to how retinal ganglion cells respond to visual stimuli in the presence of uh, motion in the periphery uh, so then I couldn't decide and I was like, well, should I keep working on the whiskers? That seems like such a good project. However, I already did that in my undergrad or should I join the Maestro Lab? So then um, I actually asked John Hopfield and he said, well, if something is going well, you should just stick with it. <laughs> but <laughs> of course, <laughs> I was too stupid to listen to him. <laughs> he had a very good point. <laughs> and I joined the Maestro Lab, and um, we ended up you know, developing that and publishing a paper on that. And then I got involved into um, a different project, which is a collaboration with the Laurent Lab, looking at temporal processing and olfaction. And I worked on that. And then it was time to graduate, and I started looking for a postdoc. So for postdoc, I knew that I wanted to be in New York. Uh, because that's where my husband was going to law school. Uh, he actually took a year off to hang out with me in Cambridge, but then we were going to move back to New York so he would finish the law school. Uh, and so I wrote down all the labs that um, I liked in New York, and I visited them. And I applied to one program that I applied to was at Rockefeller University uh, at the Physics Center. They had the Center Fellows, sort of like what we have for CNI Fellows. Uh, and so they had one fellow per year, uh, and then I got that, I got selected for that, and so then it was a no-brainer because as a center fellow, you kind of have quite a bit of an uh, autonomy, so you can work with anybody you want or you can do something else, uh, and I like that. And so um, then we moved to New York. Uh, I'm interested in the, in the process of coming together, uh, pulling together a research program of your own. Yeah. I'm interested if there is any specific point that you can bring to mind where you felt there was a transition and uh, from, from, a sense, from adoption to the sense of ownership. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. So um, for me, so in my postdoc when I came to Rockefeller, I kind of had to figure out my own way. And um, I was 
very ambitious, and so I thought, oh, well, you know, what I really want to study is the auditory system, because I want to keep doing what I was doing in the retina, but the retina is a slice, and that's just, like, so boring. You know, I want to study the brain, <laughs> and you can do optogenetics in the brain, like, optogenetics was just coming online then. You could record from many neurons, so you can do all the experiments in the mouse brain. Uh, but then, you know, people were talking about how the visual system is not great to study in mice, but hearing is really good. And so I got really interested in that idea. And so I thought, oh, what I'll do as a postdoc, I'll just do some experiments in mice, in the auditory system. Uh, but because I wasn't really affiliated with an auditory lab, so what they did is they gave me a room, you know, and a very small budget, and were like, you know, you can do your experiments there. Uh, but it didn't really, um, you know, it, it's really hard to set up sort of your laboratory under those kinds of uh, conditions. And so, I, you know, I went to Tony Zader's lab at Cold Spring Harbor and learned the techniques there. Uh, but then it's just every step was so difficult, like getting animals was difficult, doing the animal protocol. Uh, because I wasn't like a PI, you know, I was just a postdoc in between different advisors. Uh, but I was very lucky because I got the um, Burroughs Welcome Career, uh, like Career Award or Transition Award, like a career grant. And um, then after two years of postdoc, I just applied for faculty positions and I got a job here. And that makes a big difference because, you know, the job here comes with a startup and then you really have the money to set up the lab. Uh, and so I actually didn't finish the paper I was doing at Rockefeller. When I came here, I finished the experiments and then published it as the first paper from this lab. Uh, but yeah, it's really hard. The thing that was hardest for me were like all the rejections that I got because for graduate school, you know, I had this very famous advisors um, and, um, you know, we would submit a paper and people would write, you know, like, ah, <laughs> what a beautiful piece of work. This is so important, <laughs> so exciting. Thank you so much for choosing our journal. <laughs> 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 and, uh, you know, when you submit papers as a young PI, you know, you get comments back that are much less uh, <laughs> welcoming. <laughs> so. How have you dealt with that, just psychologically? What, what? Um, let's just, let's see. Well, I was really depressed the first year here. Uh, it was really difficult. And um, it was so shocking to me that how different, diffi different it is to be kind of a faculty in the medical school environment mm -hmm. versus be like a postdoc or a grad student in this like elite kind of, you know, very um, ivory tower places. And like, you know, as a graduate student or postdoc, like, you know, everything I did would be like, oh, good job, you know, this is so great. And as a, a faculty, you actually find out, huh, like you go to conferences as a postdoc or graduate students, you know, many people want to talk to you and it's very exciting. Uh, but when you're a young faculty, actually nobody wants to talk to you. <laughs> people are like, oh, what are you studying? Oh, okay. <laughs> 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 like uh, until, you know, like you have to reach some threshold, but um, it gets very competitive very fast. When are we going to move as scientists to a double-line review system? 
I mean, I think the publishing system in general needs to change. I, you know, I don't really, uh, the, um, like, peer review system is, it, it's not, I mean, it's, it sounds good in principle, but in, you know, practically speaking, it's not a great, it's not all as pure as it, you know, sounds. I don't know what's the right thing to do. My, my first beef with academic publishing is all the journals and the publishing houses that are making money off of it. I don't really understand why we have that. And the only reason why we have it is that we as a community, you know, still promote people who publish in nature and science or, and give them grants, you know, all this stuff. Why, why would we do that? You know, it's <laughs> it makes no sense as a scientist. Like so many papers get rejected from nature and science, and the kind of like the importance of the last name of the last author is so important there. It doesn't seem like a fair system. So, and then the fact that you know less privileged scientists in less privileged uh, parts of the world cannot even read what we publish in Science and Nature. It's just absurd, so, uh, and unethical, and unfair. Um, for any undergrad who's applying to grad school, uh, they might get advice that they be very specific. And that, in a way, kind of has to balance with this idea that you don't really know what you want to do. Well, that's a very good question. So many things are like that. For example, your prelim is like that, right? In your prelim, you have to say, I will do experiments A, B, C. My outcomes will be A1, B, A2, B1, B, B2, C, C1, C2, and I will learn X, right? That's your prelim. That doesn't mean that when you start doing your experiments, you're going to be doing A, B, C, and those will be your outcomes. It's just an exercise to think through what specifically you could be doing. And so the applications are very much like that. You don't have to know what you want, but you have to imagine, be able to imagine a scenario where you're reasonably doing something that's of interest to you and what that specifically is. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's like um, when you write grants, you know, the grant proposal has to make sense. You know, it's, I don't know what I'm going to be doing five years from now. But in the grant proposal, I describe exactly what I will be doing uh, five years ago, from now under these magical sets of, you know, scenarios, plausible scenario, that I'm going to do the experiments. I recall that you were involved in um, mentoring around which I think was specifically for women. What sort of drove you to that? Yeah, so, well, so that's a big topic. Uh, so COSIGN, which is Computational Systems Neuroscience Conference, uh, has sort of been my conference since I was a graduate student. The first time they organized this, this conference um, in, um, like, I think 2002 or something, they didn't invite any women speakers, so it was all men speakers. And then, People, <laughs> people, you know, sort of like got upset, and they started inviting more women as speakers. And then eventually, they had, like, always had a male and a female uh, co-chairs of the of the committee, which, you know, I guess I don't know if I like it because it's like the idea is you can't trust the male chair to pick 
women. You know, like, why would you do that? You know, why is that a rule? But so Conrad and I actually were co-chairs for two years of COSIGN a couple of years ago. And uh, the conference, oh, so I'll tell you two stories that are funny. The first, the first story is about NIPS. So you guys know about NIPS, Neural Information and Processing Systems. So that's a big conference. Uh, and it was actually kind of popular in the 90s and then it became less popular. Now it's huge because like all the Google, a like all the Google and the AI people go there and like it gets really, uh, it's really big. So my first conference when I was working with John Hopfield was to go to NIPS. That was the first conference I went to. And I don't know how big it was, probably like a thousand people. They were, there were five women there. One of them was an undergrad. <laughs> one of them was a grad student in my lab. And one was a postdoc with Bill Bialik. So we're like the Princeton, three women from Princeton, two women. Uh, and there were like two other women there. <laughs> and they had a party. And so we went to the party. It was in like some sort of, it was at Breckenridge actually, in like one of these things. And they put me and my, the graduate student from my lab on like, they had two chairs like this. And we sat in the chairs, and they lined up, and they would time each other <laughs> to talk to us. <laughs> like, because there were only two women in the room. So they ended up just like having these lines of people talking to us. It was really crazy. And I didn't appreciate how crazy it was, because I was an undergrad, you know? Why, why, were they t why did they want to talk to you? Well, I guess, I don't know. They thought it would be more fun than talking, having like an all-male party. It was very <laughs> strange. <laughs> so, but it's fine, you know. Uh, I realized that, like, you know, just in our field, like, there are very few women. Now there are more women. So then, Cosign, when I was the chair, um, you know, we counted how many women there were. And there were about, like, 17% women. And which means that it's a 700-people conference. So you have... Uh, you know, over 100 women. But any time you're in a social situation, it's not quite, you know, as crazy as that NIPS party, but like, you're the only woman at a table. And so I thought that we could organize a social event for women to kind of um, get together and like, you know, meet each other and um, become more, uh, kind of discuss other career um, issues and maybe mentoring. Uh, so, but like not explicitly for women, just like kind of women-centered, like, like men could also come. Uh, and so we had one lunch like that. Uh, and then it grew into this event, uh, sort of more about promoting diversity uh, at COSIGN. And they still, they now still have that, so they have that every year. So, uh, but the question is, is it successful or is it not successful? Because it's um, one of the years, it was actually really, it gets very depressing. Um, so it's better to have those events than to not have them, but they're kind of not fun. <laughs> and then this year, um, somebody ran the statistics about cosine and uh, kind of like the top people who have the greatest number of abstracts ever at cosine because it's so selective. Uh, and out of like the top 30 or 20 people, there is only one woman who has the, like more than, you know, four abstracts. Uh, 
Yeah, and then the same for, so this is of all time, then the same for like just this conference. And then they looked at, they tried to, to make it more or less even for, although there's always more men than women who are speakers, you know, invited speakers, but at least they tried to even it out. So it's not, you know, it would be like six to eight, but not 10 to two. Uh, but then they have the abstracts that are uh, uh, submitted and um, the top, you know, 30 are selected for talks. And out of those top 30, there were only two that had women PIs on them. So it's just, it's kind of like, we think we're at 17%, but I think we're really at the much lower number. Uh, and so, and then the question became like, is it that we have few women in the field or the women in our field don't go to cosign or there is, once they do and they submit, there is a bias against them in the selection process. Um, so we don't know, yeah, but it continues. It's kind of a thing where uh, the NIPS experience was bad, but then <laughs> kind of after that, in graduate school, I didn't really mind, like I didn't feel like nobody, there was nobody who would talk to me because I was a woman. Uh, but once you go to this kind of more senior stage and you're again like the only woman in the room, uh, and you realize that it's a systemic pro problem, it's actually not clear uh, what to do. So, I don't know. Uh, and many people say, oh look, you know, the problem is that we just have very few women. Well, in neuroscience, we have been at parity in terms of PhD students since the 90s. We've been, you know, 50% women PhDs. And if you go to, so this is 90s, that was even before my time, so those, if it had propagated, we would be at 50%, you know, tenured professors now, but we're not. And it's not like, and then people are like, well, it's a computational field, we just have few women. But, um, you know, I'm directing this computational summer school this year uh, in Portugal, and out of, we got lots of applications uh, for, we got like 180 applications for 24 spots. But out of the 120 applications, I think it was something like 85 women, 95 men. So it's at the PhD level, even for the computational class, you are almost at parity. But yeah, this is, we need to run the statistics, or somebody needs to run the statistics on cosine. So we don't really understand, but like there is this thing. And so then actually senior women who are sort of in, could be computational in neuroscience field, were commenting on Twitter about like the nature of cosine and how they feel unwelcome there, and they came up with this hashtag brosine, which was hilarious. <laughs> but like I never thought about it in those terms, because to me, of course, since my NIPS experience, I felt things have been getting much better. <laughs> what do you see? Did you see um, aspects of bro culture which are intrinsic to conferences and to culture versus? I mean, the, there is there is the system, and then there is the way that it's implemented, right? So people can be there. There can be. There can be hostility, yeah. but then there's also hostility, which is sort of intrinsic in the way that things are solved. Do you, how do you see those two balances? Yeah, I don't know. I have to say that I didn't notice that just because I'm kind of used to that sort of <laughs> attitude, you know. Uh, 
which is not a good excuse, mm -hmm. but um, I have been thinking about different conferences and like the comfort level that people feel and the graduates feel like at, for example, I now go to auditory system, Gordon conferences, and it's just much more inclusive, you know? Um, but it's not like we don't have a problem. We had the same problem for the auditory cortex conference four years ago where there were like one woman speaker out of 30 invited speakers uh, and people were trying to boycott the conference. So I don't know, you start thinking, oh, well, other fields are different, but I don't know if they're different or it's like th those specific organizers kind of create the environment where people feel comfortable, yeah. This series is brought to you by MindCore, the Mind and Brain Center for Outreach, Research, and Education at the University of Pennsylvania. This episode was recorded from an event series co-sponsored by the Center for Undergraduate Research and Fellowships, and is based on Growing Up in Science, a worldwide conversation series started by Dr. Weiji Ma and Dr. Christina Alberini at New York University. To hear other episodes and watch the video recordings of these conversations, please visit our website's link in the podcast description.